Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. The absolutely coolest, most fascinating, not what you think it's going to be movie came out recently in August. It's called Free Puppies. And it It almost has a double entendre. It's co-directed by two women, Christina Thomas and Samantha Wishman in Los Angeles. And it's an extraordinary accomplishment. And I can say that because I'm about to have the 7th Annual Dog Film Festival. So I know what dog films can be and what they can't be. And this one is just fabulous. Christina, welcome to the show. Congratulations on what looked like an actually hard job to do. You didn't make it look difficult. You covered up how hard it must have been. But I have a strong sense of that. You must have had an enormous challenge, I I imagine. Yes? Yes. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Yes, this has been a five-year process, and we are so excited to finally have it out in theaters. Yeah, first-run features. Got it into theaters during the dreaded post-COVID, nobody wants to go to the theater. It will also be streaming. But... Try and support, please, your local theaters, whether it's for a one-day showing or a longer run. This is an amazing movie. It's, in a, in a nutshell, I guess we could say, Christina, it's about what's happening with dogs and cats, but in this case, dogs, in the South. And there's this kind of the South, capital T, capital S. Oh, yeah, everything's different there. They don't know what to do with their animals, or they're poor, or they're far from veterinary care. And it's just kind of this amorphous idea. The South is a bad place to be a dog, and everywhere else is a bit better. Your movie takes us right into the trailers and the squalor and the desperation of people who actually seem to love dogs, but they're over their heads. I'm thinking, of course, of the two brothers that we'll talk about in a minute. But what's really interesting, and this is the thing I want to know, is where did you find these women who drive a Lexus SUV and wear like church clothes, like chic church clothes and pearls and go into these environments where they're just trying to get the puppies neutered and spayed and maybe get flea medication. And they don't talk down to the other people because they're all from the same place, but they're so different looking than the people they're talking to. How did you find those women? Because they are kind of the, the backbone of your film. 
Oh, absolutely. So uh, Monda Ann and Ruth, we follow throughout the film. And we were introduced to Monda through Muffy Meyer, who is a documentary filmmaker in New York and was a huge advisor. She's the story editor on the film. And she had actually filmed Monda as a child in a docuseries that she made several years ago. And when we were interested in making this film, she reintroduced us to Monda. So if we had not have met Monda, we wouldn't have met Ruth and Anne. We were very lucky uh, going into the town with someone. To me, she's the unofficial mayor. She knows everyone. She gets things done. And uh, she introduced us to all of the women and then the different uh, spay and neuter uh, that we went to, Dixie Day Spay. And my kids have paws. Right. Um, and she was really just our our local guide, and the film would not be a film without her. That's true. But didn't it strike you as a documentary filmmaker and as a storyteller that there was something, almost a disconnect, that this lady that has her own business, a big flooring business, flooring and, and stuff that she's turned into in the back into kind of her own private little rescue, that she goes out dressed well in a fancy car and talks mm-hmm. person to person with these people and there's no judgment and there's no – if a Yankee came down there, I imagine, being you, and you were talking yes. to the people or me, God forbid. I mean they'd run from me. I'm so intimidating because I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> what are you doing? And stop doing that. But they were just so – on the same wavelength with the people whose dogs they were kind of trying to rescue, but never judgy. It, wasn't that an incredible thing that they could do this and, and never lose heart themselves? Absolutely. These women also all pretty much have full-time jobs, and they just have a love and passion for rescuing dogs in this area. So I think when they're in certain situations that might be different from their own, their main focus is just how are we going to either get these dogs Mm -hmm. spayed or neutered or transported out. And in addition to Monda, our first cinematographer was also from the area. So I do agree if my friend Sam and I had gone down by ourselves, I don't know how welcoming everyone would have been to the idea of us filming them and getting interviews, but having Monda and Carter and his wife, who was the camera assistant, Paolo there, we kind of just already had a foot in the door. Um, and that really helped us tell the story. Were you already, a, were you like this highly um, politicized person around the issue of transport? I don't mean politicized politically, but were you just very aware of the transport of lots of dogs, grown and puppies, from the south to the northeast? Was this something you already knew about or was this a learning curve for you? This was a huge learning curve for me. Uh, Samantha had more experience. She had rescued a dog for her family from uh, Tupelo, Mississippi. It came up on a transport. And when she went to pick up the dog, there were tons of people there with signs. They were crying. And she was like, what is happening? And she spoke with the woman who drove the transport. And she said that she does this weekly. And there's just tons of dogs. And so that really piqued our interest. Why are there so many dogs and why in these specific areas? But it's something that I always say, I am not an expert on dog rescue. These women are, and we were just there to listen and to learn and try to tell their story. Which is very nicely objective view, which makes you a good documentary filmmaker. And that's why it's such a good documentary. We see free puppies. And 
it and you explain at some point, well, you know, there's just boxes of puppies that are put out in boxes and, and it says on the side of the box, free puppies in the South. Those are the ones that they yeah. don't drown or shoot as a way of, of population control. Again, not judgy. That's just the fact. But there's also the sense of free the puppies. That's the feeling I got. We got to free the puppies from these situations because yeah. they're not having a good life. They're alive, but they're not having the life we would want for them. We, critical, judgmental, I've got a better life for your dog than you can offer it, which could just boil down to flea and tick control and regular meals and vet care and spay and be spayed and neutered so that you are not procreating basically against your 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 will or against your quality of life, you the dog. When you found the two brothers that were very marginal people living, it seemed almost off the grid, in two incredibly squalid kind of trailers, and one of them with severe PTSD from Vietnam. And the men were just barely, barely functioning, but the dogs meant everything to them. And they were surrounded by them. And these lovely women gently talking them, please give me this dog so that I can get her spayed and neutered and maybe get you some flea stuff and maybe flea bomb the place. Were those men a revelation to you? They were to me. It's like, oh my God, these people need services. The people need services, social services. This is so cruel. Did you feel that way? Yeah, definitely in certain areas like that, there's just this huge lack of access to resources. And those brothers specifically were living um, near this dump yard. So it's kind of common in this area for people to dump dogs there. And so in my mind, they're dog rescuers themselves. They're taking all these dogs into their property and then doing the best that they can with the limited resources that they have and then heavily rely on Ann, Monda and Ruth to help get the dogs spayed and neutered and then eventually get into new homes if that's something that they were willing to do. Uh, There's one part that's funny to me when Ruth is talking to them about uh, we're going to get these into homes and dress them up in clothing. And then the brothers are like, why would you dress them up? Yes. And I was like, brothers, you're right. We are crazy. (laughs) We people that do this nonsense, we are out of our minds. But but that was she was trying to paint a picture that they couldn't begin to imagine. I mean, they were, they looked as if they didn't have running water themselves to bathe in, Yeah. but they were, they were surviving together in this, in, it, they were almost like abandoned dogs themselves, abandoned by our society. And when you got one of them to speak to the camera, or you didn't really do anything, you just kept your camera there, Christina, which is a, a great skill of a documentarian, I think. And he, and he kind of had a meltdown a quiet, subtle meltdown about the things he had seen in Vietnam. And he couldn't speak about it. And you thought, these dogs are his only connection to humanity. I mean, it it, it was so glaring. You made it, in such a subtle way, you made it so obvious. Yeah, I think being out in the woods and stuff, uh, there's not a lot of people that are coming by and they really like love these dogs, rely on the love of the dogs and do their best that they can to take care of them. You can really see how much they care for the animals that they have, again, with the limited resources that they have. So it becomes a kind of philosophical, moral issue, doesn't it? I mean, we're, the women are coming in to do the best they can to get these dogs 
safe, more in a more safe space, but really healthier because the men want the dogs back. I mean, he was very attached to one and very nervous about letting her go to be spayed and made them promise that they'd bring her back. So they were not like, yeah, please take all these dogs off our hands at all. Right. This was their extended family. But philosophically, did it occur to you, I don't know what your background is, but it's got to be more privileged than the people you were filming, right? Didn't you think, wow, I think this often about the pet world. We're so focused on the dog getting well and getting vet care and getting good nutrition. What about these human beings? Did that, was that, or did you just, did you push that out of your mind or, or was it present in your mind and you let the audience figure that out? I think it was definitely present in my mind, especially like you were saying before, uh, some of the women drive Lexuses and, um, live in these like beautiful homes in the area as well. But yeah, I mean, part of what we want to do with this film is raise awareness and connect resources to be distributed more fairly because we need to help the communities, not just help transport the good adoptable dogs from the communities. Exactly. And that is a really big part of it. Talk about the, uh, the so-called local shelter, like, I mean, sure. what, what, so what, what passes for a shelter, let's say. Yeah, so the local shelter that you see is, is not much. Uh, there's a few cages on the inside, but the outside doesn't even have a roof. So if you think of flooding, you know, they'll have to transport the animals, and maybe there's not a lot of volunteers there that can spend a lot of time with the animals throughout the day, so... I know they're working hard to create a shelter, but more importantly, Monda is very focused on spay and neuter, and she recently has decided to start back up her spay and neuter transport, so to try to help get as many dogs spayed and neutered in the most affordable way, because a lot of people uh, can't go to a very local spay and neuter that might cost $200, but there's one that's only $50, but it might be an hour away. So does that mean taking a day off of work and losing money in that sense? So what Mond is doing is just really providing support and aid to help the community get more dogs and, uh, spayed and neutered to help reduce the amount of dogs in the area. I guess in any culture, this looks to me, the, the, the places that you went, like the third world, whether it's a you know some island somewhere, some native island where there's all these loose dogs, and and I've had these films in the Dog Film Festival and other ones that have been submitted, where some old building that used to be a fill in the blank is now the dog shelter. It doesn't really shelter. It's yeah. if you're lucky, it's got a cement floor. If you're lucky, somebody comes once a day and can hose it down, and give them some water and food. And this is America. We've got this third world for these animals alongside people living in third world conditions. And it's very interesting that we are so quick to judge and quickly, you know, get an outfit for our dog for Halloween. But it's so right. it, it's so facile to judge. Well, they just are ignorant. They just don't know any better. These are people that are fighting to survive fighting to survive for themselves. Yeah. And you take us inside, in a, again, in not in a, wow, look at this horrible place kind of way, but more like this is the reality. This is what we're talking about. And it's, it's interesting that there's nothing we can do. And it's certainly, I don't think any of us in more privileged places that transports come to should be giving ourselves some big fat pat on the back. Wow, 
I adopted a dog from the South. You know, it's a really sad story. Used to be on the side of the road. People love to tell those stories. Like, you didn't mm-hmm. do anything, okay? You wanted a dog, and you got one, and you liked its story. I'm ho- sorry to be – sorry, not sorry to be harsh about it, but I wish there was something we, the shelters and the people who support them in the Northeast or, or in California where you are, Southern California, something we could mm-hmm. do that would really change the landscape. It is good to spay and neuter. It's pretty much vital, but there's all this other – infrastructure around it. Like there's nobody to pick up the stray dogs or the hurt dogs and no place to take them. In fact, you yeah. sh- you showed some local politics around the issue of building a shelter. I mean, the realities are so harsh, right? Paving Absolutely. roads. Talk about those meetings. Exactly. It, it was such an eye opener to me. I think our privilege insulates us. Uh, that's all I can say, that we're worried about which brand of food or litter we use is such a privilege. It's like neurosis. Really poor people don't have time to be neurotic. They're either psychotic or they're functioning, you know. Neurosis is for people who can afford to shrink and think a lot about why they're having these feelings. And I sort of think that's the truth about the situation of dogs and dog rescue. In you showed a map. The whole southern part of America is just screaming to be brought up to a different standard of living for people and the animals. So so talk about the political um, meetings that you covered. Definitely. So Amanda is a commissioner for Streets and Highways, but when she goes to these commission meetings, she obviously brings up the animal shelter because no one else is. And you can see in the film that she's been fighting to have a working animal shelter for the past 12 years. And then she's kind of met with people who come up with any excuse that they can. The roads need to be paved. We need fire departments. Obviously, fire departments are extremely important, and they do live on uh, sort of like a hill. So if the hill's falling down and everyone needs to get up that hill to go to and from work, that's, of course, important. But at the end of the day, there needs to be more focus and attention on uh, this crisis of this overpopulation of dogs in these certain areas. And we see in different areas in the South, like Atlanta, they have more resources there and kind of less of a problem. But then when you go the hour or 30 minutes away to a town like Trenton, when there's only uh, 2,000 people, excuse me, you just see a huge difference. And they don't have these access to the resources that might be available in Atlanta. And then they're built with these struggles. And then you have Mondo, who's just constantly fighting, like, we need to do something about it. And I, I don't know how she or or many of the incredible volunteers all around the world, not just the U.S., how they keep up their confidence and courage in thinking, I'm making a difference. It matters to this one dog. It does matter to the one dog. But you take one step away, which this film does, while bringing us in in a close-up, we also see the bigger picture, which is, oh, my God, how is this ever going to get fixed or made better? You know, there was a time when... It was considered that there were people I interviewed on the show a decade ago on Long Island where there was a town, whichever the town was, I don't remember, where the shelter was, oh, was so awful because this building had a chute. And this was apparently something that mm-hmm. happened around the country. So anybody that wanted to dump off a dog, whether it's injured or a puppy or young or old, you opened the chute and the dog went down the chute and landed in this one pen on top of whatever other animals had been dumped there. And there was one man to look after this building, and he was paid for 
eight hours a day, five days a week. So he would go in on his own time on the weekend because otherwise there was no one there to do anything, not take all these animals out of this pit. It's like, well, would that be better than what they've got there, which is, yeah, it's open air and it has no protection from the sun and the flooding, but at least they're not being sent down a chute. It's like, you know, it's like, what is the yardstick by which you measure awfulness in terms of animal conditions? I think, you know, Monda, Ann, and Ruth specifically in that area, Ruth has a large uh, herder foundation is Troopers Treasures, and she has a very large group of fosters that help uh, volunteer. She does pet adoption events at the local PetSmart and Petco to help get dogs out. Um, And Monda had kind of taken a step back and has now become way more active, and then Ann is way more focused on the uh, shelter that we see in Trenton. Um, and you know, they're, they're just doing the best that they can, but they are faced with these huge difficulties and really like a lack of support. Like the laws need to be enforced, maybe implement more laws and kind of dog rescue to me is such a community effort. So the more people that are involved, the, the more we can help reduce the number of dogs in these areas. So we have to wonder in an affluent city like Atlanta, where they have some great shelters thriving and, you know, raising lots of money and lots of awareness. And they probably have lots of empty pens, like so many really successful shelters do these days. There's room in the inn because people keep adopting, which is fabulous. You kind of wish they could just go a little bit to the left or the right and see what those little towns are like. Because women like this, what ha- you have to think, what happens on a, on a bad day for her? What happens if she gets sick or hospitalized or fill in the blanks? Who takes her place? I mean, the, they're carrying the weight of this on their shoulders. Absolutely. And like I said before, they all pretty much have full-time jobs. Yeah. So they, they spend days, I mean, hours on the phone every day just trying to find a foster or adopt a dog or figure out with Dorinda, who does that local transport for spay and neuter. They really just work together to make things happen. But yeah, on a day when they're sick or something, that can really set them back because the dogs just seem to be multiplying. Um, when we first went down there, they told us, go to Walmart and you'll see boxes of puppies that say free puppies. And uh, it's just something that I'm originally from Philadelphia, and living in like a, a city like that, you don't really see dogs right. roaming the streets. No. <laughs> and then we go down to to this rural area in Georgia, and it's just, it's more common to see uh, dogs on the side of the road or uh, dogs chained up. You know, maybe yes. someone is yes. working all day and they, they don't want the dog messing up their house. But then to see this dog living this life on the chain, as Monda says, it's just, it's watching life go by and it's just horrible and she saved one she saved more than one she just took them off the chain legal or illegal which is something that even on long island there's a lot of unchaining groups that go around doing this because chaining can happen even on the supposedly affluent supposedly more uh well-heeled or or well-educated east coast it 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 doesn't only happen there i i just i I just it's, it's so funny if you could imagine cardboard boxes of free puppies and you lined them up on any road in any of the places that mostly the people who are listening to this show live, they wouldn't last five minutes. They'd all get adopted, you know, free puppies. And it isn't even the free part. It's like, oh, my God, they're so cute. I want a puppy. And down there, it's like, oh, no, now there's a whole nother six or eight or ten of them. What do we do with them? 
So you've done exactly. an amazing job, Christina. Free Puppies is a wonderful movie. If people can support their local theaters, please do it. I'll, I'll have a link where you can find First Run Features. Their website will tell you where it's playing in theaters and also where you can see it with virtual streaming. You and Samantha Wishman have done an amazing job. It's a really wonderful movie, and it's not depressing to those of you who think, oh, I can't see a depressing movie. It's not depressing. It's instructive and really uplifting to see people devoting their lives with no personal gain. But the satisfaction of knowing at least a few dogs are better off, and, and they made it happen. And you and Samantha have made it happen with this movie to open our eyes and make us aware. And I hope somehow energize some people somewhere to pitch in and help really get to the root of the problem. It's not an easy one, but you've done a great job, Christina. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for giving us this platform to talk more about it. It's been an honor to be on your show. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon. <laughs>